Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. Hey, everybody. I'm John Donvan, host and moderator of Intelligence Squared U.S. Debates. And this week, we're bringing you another special episode of our podcast, by which I mean we're not presenting a debate per se, as we usually do. But we're having more of a chat. Um, and it's a chat on an issue that we have been thinking a lot about over the past year, and that subject is capitalism. Uh, you might recall, uh, if you're a regular listener, that that was the topic of our season finale debate held in New York City just a few months ago. In that one, the resolution was capitalism is a blessing. And now our friends at Foreign Affairs Magazine are releasing an entire issue that's dedicated to capitalism and the debate around capitalism's future. So that's what we're going to be chatting about. And I'm doing that here with two terrific guests, Catherine Mangu Ward, um, who was part of that debate and is the editor-in-chief of Reason Magazine, which is a um, prominent libertarian intellectual journal. And Catherine, you debated for the resolution, Capitalism is a Blessing, in that one. So thanks very much for coming back for a second round of conversation. Thanks for having me back. And our other guest, um, the noted and notable uh, Joseph Stiglitz, who is a Nobel Prize-winning economist. He's a professor at Columbia uh, University, which is where we're actually taping part of this debate. Uh, Joe and I are in uh, at Columbia, and Catherine is at uh, Reasons offices in New in Washington D.C. And um, Joe, um, you've just published a featured article in Foreign Affairs magazine, the title of which is "The Starving State: Why Capitalism's Salvation Depends on Taxation." And we're going to be talking about some of the content of that article. But the first thing I want to do is thank you for joining us to have this conversation. Nice to be here. And I, I'm going to say this twice in the debate and this conversation. I'm sure we'd love to have you come <laughs> debate with us sometime because. I mean, Catherine, you would, you would say it's a pretty invigorating experience to be on the Intelligence Squared stage. I had not? a tremendously good time. Uh, I don't know if I can say the same for my opponents who were <laughs> brutally annihilated by my wit and uh, on point. Yeah, I'm so, I'm so glad that you're, you're, you're so unbiased in that point of yeah, view as well. Yeah, no, that was, a, that was an objective evaluation. No, it was, it was a great time. I um, really enjoyed it. So on the night of that debate, one thing that we talked about is the reason for us doing it at this time in the context is that, is that we're in a time when the, the relatively rock-solid, um, relatively unquestioned uh, um, faith that the American public has in capitalism and its ways and its tenets seems to be on shaky ground. Um, we cited that night uh, polling that shows that particularly among younger Americans, um, there's great, great skepticism about the value of capitalism as a system. And we have the fact that uh, significantly serious Democratic candidates are talking about a complete overhaul 
Not complete, but an, an, an overhaul of the capitalist system. Um, and our question on that night was, um, you know, is this valid or not? But what I wanted to talk to you about, both of you about now, is why are we in this period of questioning about capitalism? And, um, Joe, why don't you take the first crack at that? Well, I would say the reason that there's such questioning is that capitalism in the way that we have it, has not delivered for very large fractions of Americans. And I emphasize in the way we have it. Uh, The critique is not necessarily about some form of market economy, some form of capitalism, but it's the kind of uh, almost unfettered capitalism that we've had over the last 40 years it's done very well for the top 1%, for the top one-tenth percent, but for a large fractions of our population, it's not delivered. Let me just give you a few numbers. Uh, real wages at the bottom today are the same as they were 60 years ago. The full, uh, the income of a full-time male worker and the full-time uh, the workers uh, who are full-time are the lucky ones, uh, are at the same level that they were 40, 42 years ago. Uh, life expectancy in the United States is lower than in virtually any of the advanced countries and has been declining. Uh, we've been experiencing an epidemic of what has been called by Angus Deaton uh, and Anne Case. Angus Deaton won the uh, Nobel Prize in uh, 2015 for economics. Um, deaths of despair, uh, suicide, drug overdose, um, alcoholism. Um, and so if we start looking at uh, uh, what's been going on, uh, it's not been working for large fractions. And then you start looking underneath the surface and you see other problems. Uh, growth uh, in the last uh, uh, 30 years has been you know, two-thirds or less of what it was in the years after World War II when we had much higher tax rates, uh, much more active uh, regulation in the financial sector. Uh, after we deregulated, we wound up with the largest, re- deepest recession in 75, 80 years. Uh, we bailed out the banks to the tune of hundreds of billions of dollars, but millions of Americans lost their home uh, millions of Americans lost their jobs. Uh, the system <laughs> seemed rigged or distorted. Uh, it was a peculiar kind of capitalism. In fact, some people describe it as socialism for the rich. And, and, and you're saying you're saying that the public noticed all of this. Oh, they certainly felt it, felt uh, it. and and they may not have felt it when things started going downhill. But uh, as things have gotten worse and worse, uh, they felt it more and more. And then economists began looking at what was going on, and they said, this is not the kind of competitive market economy that we study in our textbooks. Yeah. Uh, there's a recent book uh, by Thomas Philippone of NYU that's come out who describes uh, the extent of market power. Uh, this has now become a, a very uh, consensus view among uh, economists that uh, we don't have a competitive economy in very important sectors uh, of our economy. Well, let me let me break in to bring Catherine into the conversation. So, Catherine, my question, my starting question is, wh- wh- why has this uh, 
why have these doubts crept in among the body politic about capitalism? And Joe's, Joe's argument is that it's not working very well right now. Now, in the debate that you took part in back in November, you, you were not assigned the role of defending the capitalism that we have now. You conceded there are problems. You conceded there, for, for example, there is always going to be crooks and liars and cheaters. Your argument then was that on the whole, compared to all other systems, over the long term, free market capitalism vol- system of, uh, of voluntary participation, um, th- you know, a, a world where you said where people thank each other for ex- transactions in which both people gain, that that's, that's the best system on the whole. However, we're we're asking a different question right now. Not as does it is it the best system compared to all others, but I'm really asking you why has it started? Why have doubts begun to creep in in such significant ways into the body politic? I mean, as always, and uh, I think probably uh, annoyingly for listeners to these conversations who hope for uh, immediate first blood, uh, I'll start by agreeing, which is just to say. Um, you know, there actually is a, a very one of the most serious problems with modern capitalism is that it's welfare for the rich. I I agree with that characterization. The croniest aspects of crony capitalism weigh very heavily on my mind, and I think weigh heavily on many people's minds, um, and more so recently. Uh, I think that the um, the rise of concern with student debt is a big part of that, as well as the um, the housing crash. And I think that. Um, the question that should be asked from there isn't quite uh, always the one that comes naturally to mind. So mm-hmm. when we see big government and big business working together, uh, people are inclined to be generous or I would say modern Americans are inclined to be more generous to government than they are to big business. Um, I'm not inclined to be generous to government at all. Um, But I think even if you are not of a libertarian persuasion, as I am, you could simply say one possible solution to cronyism isn't to give government more power to to um, thereby kind of restrict or minimize the damage that can be done by corporations. But um, but the reverse, that that government is actually too powerful, that the the game is um, is too high stakes to have control of the state. And that uh, corporations aim for that and failing that, that they uh, do something that Joe documented very nicely in his foreign affairs piece, which is they they engage in arbitrage between jurisdictions. They look for a more hospitable state to, um, you know, to house their corporate headquarters or to take their profits or to per- the, the people who benefit to personally retreat. Um, and so my question is always, well, what can we do to reduce the appeal of co-opting the state? What can we do to mm-hmm. take away the incentive of rich people to become powerful people or to buy them? So I, I, I want to get into the, those differences. And, I, and it's totally fine, by the way. I'm not looking for blood on the floor in this conversation. <laughs> if, if there's, Maybe I was if, just projecting. If, no, I'm really not. I, I mean, that's that's kind of not the intelligence squared thing. Is we, we really would like to shed light if it's at all possible and when it's possible. Um, but it does sound as though both of you are saying we're in a period of capitalists behaving badly and that that needs to be addressed one way or the other. Um, and Joe, in your article, you are you are arguing more for some solution coming through the government and through taxation specifically. And Catherine is definitely saying that she would like to find alternative ways to do that. So, so make the case as you do in the article for the fact that that taxes essentially aren't high enough as a percentage of GDP should or should be higher or should be allocated in different ways. Well, it begins with with an understanding of 
why we need collective action. Uh, that working together, we can do more than we can working separately. Uh, we all understand that in the context of national defense. Nobody says we all should have our own army. Uh, at least most people don't think uh, that. And economists refer to those as public goods. But over the years, we've understood that there are a lot more things that are need to be provided collectively. Basic research. Uh, if you, you know, everybody benefits from the internet and well, or, or DNA. We're, you know, I'm alive. You know, the advances in research have really, you know, and no private guy is going to be able to afford. And if they do afford it, they're going to try to make sure that information is uh, enclosed uh, and not used to the extent that it could be for the benefit of society. So there are a whole range of areas where you need collective action. Uh, and especially if you want, you, you think of what you mean by a fair society, where a kid born from poor fair parents has an equal chance of getting ahead, or at least a reasonable chance, uh, not equal, but at least a reasonable chance of getting ahead. So uh, we have to have public education in some form, support for pub, uh, education of the, of the poor. Um, so there are a whole collection of, of these things. We have to respond to climate change. Uh, you know, if, if we don't stop companies from polluting, we're all going to suffer the consequences. So you need collective action to provide for public goods, to regulate us, again, uh, regulate people from acting badly. You actually need collective action to make sure that markets work. And collective action you're using as a synonym for government. No, I'm not. Oh, okay. it's, a, it's a broader set of collective action. Uh -huh. When workers get together for collective bargaining, that's mm -hmm. a kind of collective action. Mm -hmm. uh, when you have class action suits by those who have been injured by uh, companies, uh, that's a kind of collective action. But among the most important areas of collective action is the government at all kinds of level, local, state, national, international level. And that requires resources. And uh, there's always going to be debate about the right amount. You know, do are we too little or too much? And I think it's pretty clear that uh, right now we have a deficiency in the provision of uh, these basic uh, services that only government can provide. Yeah, and, again, could you count off what basic services? Because I, I want oh, to take that question to Catherine. Uh, health. Health. Mm -hmm. Education. Uh, education. Infrastructure. Basic research. Mm -hmm. uh, protecting us against climate change and mm -hmm. other environmental uh, effects, so and, and protecting us against monopolies. Uh, you know, the, the monopolists are not going to say, oh, uh, it's very nice for us voluntarily, uh, yeah. uh, but you, you, you don't expect that from the monopolists. And in fact, uh, that's why a inevitable part of the check against the abuses of capitalism are strong democracies. And, you know, I agree, it's really hard to get it right. And we haven't gotten it right, but some countries have done better than we have. Catherine, um, Joe's, Joe's point that there are deficiencies in certain services that 
he's arguing should be available to the public education, healthcare, infrastructure, anti-monopoly legislation, I suppose. Um, His argument being, first of all, these deficiencies are there. They're real. They're they're not solvable any other way but by getting government involved. What do you make of that argument? I I would agree with the first bit and not the second, I think. Which um, is the second and which is the first? That is to say, uh, those problems are real. Those problems are, of course, real. Mm. Um, You know, the provision of of education and um, physical safety and uh, physical well-being are uh, are the central concerns of society. The idea, though, that government is either uniquely well-suited or um, or doing a, a particularly good job in, in any model out there in providing those things is the place where I would take issue. I think you could equally say that um, the state is a monopoly, many, many have, <laughs> and that um, it, it, like many monopolies, is subject to um, abuse and that the the check on the abuses of the state are are strong markets and and that's the place where I want to go um, in Joe's article in, in foreign affairs he it's framed as um, the state is starving um, and as I was reading one thing occurred to me is that um, the state is not starving in the sense of anorexic it is disordered it's but it's it's almost bulimic and I think that's the thing I want to talk about a little bit the idea that that the thing that is holding the state back or one of the things that is holding the state back from solving all of these problems or providing all of these goods is not enough money or not enough resources. And I think that's wrong. I think that it's it's in, inherent in the limits of the capability of the state to say – um, you know, there there may be some goods and services uh, that it that it can provide well, but that um, we shouldn't count out markets to provide many of those things that um, that he just listed. And the place I would refer your your readers is just to look at um, a chart that has been out there floating around uh, for the last few years that just looks at the changes in prices of goods over the last uh, couple of decades, and you see that. Um, you know, the the real prices of, of goods like TVs and household furnishings and toys and cars um, have all become more affordable, whereas the, the prices of things like hospital services, uh, college textbooks and tuition, medical services, those have all become much more expensive. And I, I think it's pretty clear to, to my mind that the thing that the things that have become more expensive have in common is that the government is highly involved in those sectors of the economy. And so I guess I would want him to talk about, I would want you, Joe, to talk about that a little bit. Um, you know, what is the evidence that if we gave the state more resources, it wouldn't screw everything up? <laughs> well, uh, uh, first, let me make clear that uh, the limitation of government is not just lack of resources. Uh, If you have uh, the big monopolies uh, saying, don't regulate us, don't curb our monopoly power, and they go to Congress and tie the hands of the the Federal Trade Commission or or the Justice Department, obviously, it's not money that is stopping us from curbing monopoly power. It's something else. Uh, So I agree. And that's why the agenda of democratization is a very much a complementary agenda uh, to what I've talked about. But while money is uh, not sufficient, uh, it is necessary to solve many of the problems we're talking about. Uh, You can't fund basic research, the discovery of DNA, which has really transformed uh, 
the biological sciences. You you can't do that without money. Uh, you can't plummet the depths of physics without money. So money is necessary, and we, the United States, uh, has cut back on the money that we provide for the public services, in particular by reducing corporate taxation, taxation of people at the top, and that's increased inequality, one of the major problems that our society uh, faces. Now, when you look at the particular argument that was just put forward about looking at where prices have gone down or prices have gone up, there are many factors contributing to differences. One of the biggest is uh, whether it's a service sector or a non-service sector. And um, healthcare is, and education are very much service sector, very labor intensive. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's a long and deep analysis in economics of what is called Baumol's disease. Uh, It's just the observation that uh, over time, the cost of services is going to rise relative to the cost of manufactured goods. If you ask the question, where has been the most rapid change in prices? It's related uh, to some areas of high tech where government involvement was very, very strong. I mean, the transistor, uh, uh, the big innovations were all funded by the by the government. Now, the private sector took those innovations and did a lot with it, and that's <laughs> yeah, but, uh, to that, say the least. <laughs> but, well, but had the government not funded the basic research we wouldn't be where we were. Oh, interesting. We uh, Catherine, what about that? Well, I guess you could equally say, had the private sector not stepped in at the moment that it did, we wouldn't have most of those benefits. I mean, but, I, but I, on I this don't one, mean to be... On a chicken and egg thing, we do know what's the chicken and what's the egg. And according to, to Joe, is that the basic research wasn't done, the private industries wouldn't have had the opportunity to do more with it. And so, and so the private industry would have been at zero perpetually is what he's saying. I think they're complementary and they each have a role and we've been starving the public sector and the result of that is the private sector won't be able to do what it otherwise could have done. And, And that's really the issue here that you need a balance and we've gotten off balance. All right, Catherine, go for it. Right. I mean, I think that that is the issue, but I would say the the off balance is in the other direction. And again, I want to come back to this question of what what do we mean by starving in this case? Because in the in the foreign affairs piece, you say um, tax revenues paid to all level of government have shrunk by four percent of national income over the last two decades. Um, the raw dollar figures are still up, and also. Revenues do not actually tell the whole story, right? Because unfortunately, I think both of us would agree uh, the government is currently spending a great deal more than it's taking in. Governments at all levels are spending a great deal more than they're taking in. Um, And I would think at the very least, this theory should be predicated on state spending, not revenues, Um, though, of course, in the long run. Um, those things have to be reconciled. So, again, I think this this idea that it is uncontroversial to say, of course, there are investments that governments have made that private sector actors have then you know, commercialized and uh, done so to the benefit of everyone. Uh, also, everyone had to drive on roads to get where they went, et cetera, et cetera. Um, that, that, to me, is not quite 
the final answer on the chicken and egg question because, of course, mm. you still need the counterfactual of, well, what would people have done with those funds if they had remained in private hands? And at least some of the time, the answer would have been fund research or build roads or uh, facilitate trash collection or do all the kinds of things that um, that we are saying here are preconditions to order and commercial success. Again, I, I don't disagree that um, that rule of law, enforcement of contracts, and all kinds of other basic s- services that the state currently provides are crucial to markets. But I question that um, the state in its current form is the only entity that could provide many of them. So who would? Well, I mean, we see all the time uh, all kinds of private mechanisms where people provide state-like services. I mean, we've all been on uh, we've all been on toll roads, uh, which is a, a classic libertarian example. Uh, of course, those are often public-private partnerships, um, and you can you can squabble about um, who gets credit or blame for those as as long you as you like. Need, even when you have a toll road, you need to roll for the state to, to uh, use uh, its powers to obtain land and uh, to make sure that uh, those. The private sector doesn't abuse uh, what's been granted to it through the acquisition of public uh, of lands uh, through compulsion. Right. And again, I mean, I'm think- not I'm not pushing back on the notion that um, a state to enforce uh, property rights and contract rights and that kind of thing um, like that that's that would be the wrong hill to die on here. But at the same time, I think you know it's it's obviously true that private benefactors fund fundamental research all the time. And uh, if, for instance, they were allowed to keep a third more of their unequal wealth, they might fund more of it. It just doesn't seem like a very outrageous claim. There is no evidence of that. But there is evidence of the following. We've done, you know, there's research been done on the rate of return to public investments in R&D, for instance, and uh, compare that to the rates returned in any other area of investment. And the evidence is pretty strong that uh, we've been starving uh, investments in basic research. Uh, and the returns that we get have been enormous. And, you know, like any area, when you're undertaking risk, sometimes you win and sometimes you lose. But you look at the average, the average returns to public investments in research are much higher than in the private sector. And that is the kind of evidence that you say is we've lost balance. Uh, the society would be better off if we invested more. And going back to what I said in the very beginning about what is the source of the discontent that we feel today, most of the areas that people are concerned of are areas where the private sector has caused the problem and people want, feel uh, a need for more. To give you uh, an example, one of the reasons for health is the private food companies have pushed carbohydrate-rich, addictive foods that have led to an epidemic of childhood well, diabetes. But with CDC endorsement of yeah. the whole food I mean, pyramid. I had, I had oh, a no, food not, pyramid not, in my, not, in not my cafeteria in no. middle school that told me to eat 11 servings of carbs. Yeah, and there have been efforts to try to make sure that uh, children don't have access to these addictive, diabetic-inducing foods, and the food companies have 
pushed back against those. Uh, Mayor Bloomberg here in New York uh, tried to uh, promote better health, uh, and the food companies pushed back. Uh, you look at the oil crisis. You know, we now know that there was vast misrepresentation of the addictive nature of the drugs that they were pushing. So, Catherine, is that to you, does that fall into the category of capitalists acting badly, behaving badly? And, 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 and more specifically, something that Joe mentioned in, in his first few minutes, would you ascribe to capitalism as it functions now in our country the enormous influence of a small number of individuals on what happens politically, what happens in the regulatory processes, what happens in who gets elected to office, etc.? So I think there's um, there's two points here. One is just, you know, in, in those examples, um, you know, the... You have just presented a, a story, a, a narrative about who caused what, and um, and I think many people believe it. I, I think you are right that that is why people feel discontent with capitalism at the moment. Uh, at the same time, I think you can say, listen, the federal government does and has for many, many decades subsidized uh, staple crops uh, that we now know broadly to have not um, been good for Americans' health. Um, the opioid epidemic is, uh, you know, is a story of um, a failed war on drugs, uh, and it has been incredibly exacerbated by the prohibition and limits on on the use of all types of drugs, both in the black and white markets. Uh, The story of education, which is, I think, in some ways the most striking one here, is a story of a, a sector of the economy that has been aggressively, heavily subsidized um, by the federal government and government at all levels um, has pushed people to acquire debt um, at artificially low rates. Um, so th- those stories are all stories of of state malfeasance. Now, of course, when the government is in the habit of handing out subsidies, as in the case of um, agriculture subsidies, there's this question of like, well, what what is the where do we ascribe the kind of moral failing when someone pursues those subsidies or lobbies for new ones. And yes, I would say um, when big ag is on the hill saying, just cut us enormous checks, uh, <laughs> that is that is crony capitalism. That is that is uh, rich people buying the uh, buying favor from the powerful. Um, I would I would not say, though, that broadly speaking, um, you can buy your way to the top in American politics. Um, certainly anytime that that argument is used, um, in defense of kind of campaign finance restrictions, um, it makes me wary uh, again because those restrictions tend to end in abridgments of what I would see as fundamental rights like speech or assembly or, um, or privacy. I'm John Donvan. This is Intelligence Squared U.S., I want to transition to a little bit of a discussion about um, the experiment that maybe you won't agree that there was an experiment launched, but with the Reagan administration, 1980, President Reagan comes to office inspired and formed by the work of Milton Friedman, University of Chicago economist, whom you praised on during your, our debate, you praised on our stage, and, and you often praise um, Catherine as, as the guy who came up with the intellectual foundation for getting it right. 
And um, when President Reagan came to office, again, the reason I'm not saying you might agree it's a perfect experiment is it's not a perfect world and there were lots of compromises with uh, Friedmanism. But basically, President Reagan wanted to put into uh, effect um, a system with much lower regulation, much lower taxation, much more freedom for uh, individuals and individual uh, corporations to throw off some of the fetters of government. Do you think that that experiment got a fair run? Uh, Catherine, and how do you think it turned out or is turning out? I would say as the years between Reagan and the present elapse, uh, his reputation seems to be declining among fans of free markets. Uh, I don't know if that's uh, too small of a trend to signify much, but um, for one thing, uh, Reagan absolutely did do uh, many of those things. He also increased spending overall. Um, much, much of that went to the defense budget, um, which, um, you know, I would say uh, is you're probably not going to find too many people saying, gosh, we should have spent less money on defense during the Cold War. But the, the fact is that the sort of the Friedmanite case, if you want to call it that, or, or just a more general pro-market and small government case asks not only that tax rates be cut, but that spending be cut commensurately, um, that the, the size and power of the state is not measured only in taxes and regulations, but also in what it extracts from people's paychecks, uh, or what it rather what it spends in people's lives. And so that's, that is a, certainly an asterisk on the Reagan legacy. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but you can also just ask that question about what's going on in the economy right now, mm-hmm. which, um, you know, I am not a fan of Donald Trump. I don't think that he is, he is executing a rational and well thought out economic policy. And yet um, the economy is pretty good by many people's estimations, certainly, and by many measures. Um, and uh, and so there's a you know, there's a there's a real question of, well, are we just waiting for the bill to come due on these policies? Or um, is there something to the idea that cutting taxes leads to growth, which is which is valuable? Can, can I come in? So uh, my view as an economist is the economy is not great unless unless you're in the one percent or the one tenth of one percent GDP. Trump promised that three, four, five percent, six percent economic growth. Uh, growth has been going about two percent. What's astounding about that is how low that number is, given that we are having a massive fiscal stimulus. We're going to have a, a trillion dollar deficit this year, the largest peacetime deficit when we're not in a recession. Again, you don't Uh, get any disagreement from me on the deficit question. So, well, the point I'm making is uh, he tried to hypercharge the economy in an unsustainable way. And what do we get? Two percent. Two percent. That's lower than we had in the decades after World War War II. By his hypercharge, you're talking about the tax cut in 2017. Yeah, which went to the billionaires and to the corporations uh, and increased their inequality, increased the number of people without health care, health insurance, um, weakened the economy. So if you look at what is happening in the lived experience of most Americans um, between... uh, 2017 and 2018, the latest data that we have, uh, we don't have the data for 2019 in yet, mm-hmm. uh, real disposable income in the middle, median, stagnated. So there wasn't any growth. But let me emphasize... Well, the again, though, are, I, I, are, don't, are I don't mean far, to interrupt, but... 
there's a there's just like it there is a real uh, dependence on how you slice these numbers. I mean, the, you could also say, just as true, the typical family's income is higher today than it's been. You could say corporate profits as a percentage of the as a share of the economy uh, peaked in 2012 and have been falling. I mean, you know, there there are other unemployment rates, obviously, especially for women and minorities, uh, lower. Unemployment than they have ever rates been. are low, but labor force participation rates are also low, much lower than they were. Uh, Simply by way of uh, saying that the lived uh, experience of the economy, at least for many people, is is good. Again, no, not defending the Trump legacy here. Yeah, I don't think he's conducting sound best, economic policy. The but. best way of, of of seeing what how people feel is what is happening to life expectancy. <laughs> and that's what I began with. And I talked about how that's been going down. And uh, when we talk about this experiment that began, you might say, with supply-side economics, with Reagan's reform, deregulation, lower the tax rates at the top, we have 40 years. 40 years is a long time. Uh, you think about capitalism in the form we know, modern capitalism, is a little over 200 years. So, so that's a large chunk of time. And what we can tell unambiguously is the growth is slower in the last 40 years than it was in the decades after World War II, when tax rates were higher and government regulated the financial sector much more strongly. We, in that period, after we instituted strong regulations. We didn't have any major financial crises, but once we deregulated, we had the financial crisis, uh, the SNL crisis, and then the biggest uh, of all the crises, the 2008 crisis, the worst crisis that we've had in 75, 80 years. The problem with Milton Friedman and the ideas that he brought to the table was that they weren't based in, uh, on sound economic science. They were ideology. You know, it, it ignored the importance of collective action. It ignored the importance of the nature of the rules of the game. So in order for a market economy to work in the way our textbooks say exposed to work, you need competition. And markets gravitate towards market power. Even Adam Smith talked about it uh, way back in 1776. But what we see today is this enormous growth of market power, monopoly power, uh, exploitation of a whole variety of uh, kinds. But even when you look at the basic rules of the game, uh, like what should firms do? Uh, should they maximize just the well-being of shareholders, that's what Milton Friedman advocated, or should they worry about the well-being of the uh, workers, uh, the customers, uh, the communities in which they operate, a broader set of stakeholders? Mm -hmm. So, uh, And the uh, analytics of this, the economics, were absolutely clear, even as Friedman was trying to change the laws of corporate governance. Shareholder value maximization does not lead to societal well-being. And the really interesting thing is that in the last few months, even our corporate leaders have now agreed on that proposition. Oh, the business roundtable. The business roundtable. The vast majority, all except a few, said shareholder value maximization is not been serving America. Do you, do you not think that was a public relations move as opposed to a sincere impulse? Uh, both. It was both. Uh, I think among some of them, 
it was a PR. I think they were sensitive, though, to the point that our conversation began, that more and more Americans think that the rules of the game as set up in the uh, Reagan experiment and the decades after that have not been serving most Americans. Catherine, you've been very patient in the last few minutes because I know you've been trying to break in and you're not in the same location as us. So I want to give you... um, possibly the last word to say what you wanted to say, but I also have a question for you to launch it. Can you be a progressive capitalist and still be a capitalist? Well, it actually, that that question perfectly launches what I was going to pop in and say, which is that back in 2005, Reason ran a debate about um, social responsibility in business, and it featured Milton Friedman, uh, Whole Foods' John Mackey, who was my debating partner at IQ Squared, and uh, Cypress Semiconductor's T.J. Rogers. And I think it's important to note that in that debate, Friedman was the moderate. Um, this this portrait of Friedman as someone who says, uh, you simply maximize shareholder value and call it a day, um, is somewhat complicated by his comments in this 2005 debate, which is well before um, this Maybe he learned round. that he was wrong. Well, Unusual for and, Milt, and Milton, and, but but maybe fact, he does learn. What we what we saw in this Did debate learn. is John Mackey saying um, what he says everywhere and always, which is that um, you know there is a there is a doing well by doing good, putting customers first, putting stakeholders first, um, and that you know his his success um, is proof of that model. Um, I don't think anyone would say he's not. A capitalist, uh, he certainly is, and um, and yet, um, you, know, you can certainly uh, offer a more subtle version. But you know, it was even Friedman's contribution. He both says, "Listen, I think the best outcome broadly will be if capitalists try to make money for their shareholders. The system is set up in such a way that if everyone follows those incentives, it tends to benefit." people and all people, including customers, the most. Uh, he still stands by that. But, um, but And you think that's true of Purdue uh, Drug Company as it pushed its uh, opioid? Again, I think the places, the places the where that proves... they push the diabetic The uh, places foods. where that proves untrue, I think, are typically places where... The finance sector, as it pushed... Market mechanisms uh, have been... financial products. Distorted The coal companies, by, as they tried okay, to destroy okay. our environment. Okay. Government <laughs> intervention. And, uh, but yes, in, in conclusion, I think that there really, there really is... Um, there really is work to be done on capitalism. I absolutely don't. Um, I don't disagree, and I think places where um, where capitalists are colluding with government, as we, you know, nothing sends chills up my spine more than seeing Mark Zuckerberg face uh, a, you know, a, a panel of congressmen and say, "I would love to work with you." That that is not going to end well for consumers, uh, <laughs> and uh, I will put my marker down now that um, if that is what we are looking at in terms of a future where we have more regulated markets um, that are more responsible, it's not going to work. Um, but I think there is, there's an alternate model in which we make more space for free action, we shrink the size of government, and we let capitalists and entrepreneurs contribute to society in their own way, where we get much better outcomes than we have now. Okay. I said at the beginning this was not going to be a debate. It's going to be a chat, and it has been a chat, but I can see the potential here. One more time, Joseph Stiglitz, I would love it if you could come debate on our stage sometime. <laughs> it, would be, it would be terrific. Take your moment. That was good. Good <laughs> and, pitch. And Catherine, uh, we would love to have you back. I want to uh, remind um, our, our listeners to this podcast that Joe Stiglitz's article is in the current uh, 
issue of Foreign Affairs magazine. Its title is The Starving State, Why Capitalism's Salvation Depends on Taxation. And Reason Magazine is always out there online and on newsstands in real physical form, edited by Catherine Mangaward. Catherine, thanks so much for joining us. Jess Douglas, it's been a pleasure to have you here. Thank you. And I'm John Donvan. Thank you for tuning into this episode of Intelligence Squared U.S. Uh, you can get the latest on our upcoming live debates and new podcasts and more by subscribing to our announcements by visiting iq2us.org. That's iq, the number two, us.org. I'm John Donvan once again. Thanks for joining us. And we'll see you next time. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger. For the ones who get it done. 